Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 38 to 50. Teacher, said John, we saw, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not um, against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose her reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I, I don't know if you remember any section of the passage that we started the service with last Sunday, but one of the phrases has, I don't know why it's lingered with me. You probably will understand immediately why it's lingered with me. It was that phrase that said, Lord, I am too stupid to be human. Do you, do you remember that? That passage as we read. I think one of the themes of this particular chapter in the Gospel of Mark is the cluelessness of the disciples. There's a commonality here. Watch for that as we walk through uh, this particular Gospel passage. The, the chapter starts with a transfiguration of Jesus. Um, that was this amazing event where the glory of God just exudes through the skin and raiment of Jesus, and, and there, aren't, there aren't any words to describe what was seen. Um, in the face of this magnificent event where Elijah and Moses show up and, and Jesus is transfigured and they get just a partial glimpse of the glory of God, they're completely terrified and undone. I, I love, uh, Verse six, where it says of John, you know, John says something, even though he can't think of what to say. See that picture there? Um, and, and, the, and the gospel writer says, he didn't know what to say, he was just terrified. It's like a commentary on what he's just said, and it essentially says that whatever he had just said was stupid because he didn't really know what he was doing. He was so far out of his depth when confronted with the glory of God that he was undone. And why is it when we can't articulate stuff at all, we try anyway? I mean, isn't that sort of like an, uh, an invitation to cluelessness? So we begin the chapter by establishing that the disciples are, at least these three, are, are somewhat clueless. And we move through, Jesus talks about his suffering his own and Elijah's. I think Elijah's probably code for John the Baptist, many believe. And then they walk off the mountain and come right into an argument 
There's a son in need of healing from demon possession. Jesus compassionately heals. I see the compassion indicated by the conversation. And the disciples ask, why couldn't we cast them out? I mean, why couldn't we do this? I hear in that question an echo of, why are we incompetent? Why, why are we clueless here? And Jesus says, well, this type only comes out by prayer. You would think that the humbling lesson of being ineffective might shut up these clueless guys for a few minutes. You might think that. But now they're starting to argue about who's most important in the kingdom of God. Another really carefully thought out argument. Jesus settles the question for them, maybe. Whoever wants to be the greatest in the kingdom must become last, the servant, the slave of all. Incidentally, it's exactly what Jesus is about to do himself but the disciples don't understand that yet. And to demonstrate what he's saying, he reaches out, picks up a child to emphasize the humility he desires in his followers. So he picks up a child and he says, the one who welcomes a little one like this welcomes me. Whoever serves the least of these, and I think he's saying children and the least of these everywhere we find them serves me. But John speaks up, continuing his run of cluelessness. We saw some folks casting out demons in your name, but we told them to stop because they're not of our party affiliation. We tried to stop them. Imagine folks who are doing the work of the kingdom of God getting grief from other folks who are doing the work of the kingdom of God. I am so glad that doesn't happen anymore. Jesus corrects John. If they are effectively appropriating the power of my name to do the work of the kingdom of God, then they have faith in me. They're on our team. And then he launches into these difficult verses. I suspect that they are all idiom and hyperbole. I don't well, you heard the verses. If your feet or hands or eyes cause you to injure any of these little ones, cut them off. I don't think that Jesus wants you to cut off any feet or, or hands or pluck out eyes, but I think what he's saying in, in no uncertain terms is that there is no discipline too harsh to undertake so that we may be kept from hindering the least of these from entering the kingdom of God. Do you hear what he said? Whatever else you have to do, however you have to school yourself, however you must train yourself, however you must discipline yourself, don't hurt these little ones, the least of these. And I think he's saying, to this, saying this to them all the while while he's holding a little child in his arms, hoping they'll get the picture. I probably should have borrowed a kid to hold for the morning, but I intend to speak too long for that. 
to generalize, I think what Jesus is saying boils down to this. There's a task to do. The way we do that task matters. And if the way we do that task injures those the task was designed to help, well, that's a very serious problem. The method injures the mission then. Or our lack of discipline injures the mission. Or my lack of integrity injures the mission. And I have got to correct that situation. Do you hear what I'm saying? These disciples are all caught up in their own importance and their own position. They feel like they have franchise rights to the kingdom of God because they were in Jesus' posse. They didn't want anyone infringing on their copyrighted ministry as if someone else doing good in the name of Jesus somehow diminished their place of importance. They wanted their positions, and they wanted their positions to remain exclusive. That's because these men were all about who is the greatest. That's power politics. I'll allow you to make your own applications to our current political situations nationally. But when retaining power becomes the goal of individuals, the primary mission is sacrificed or lost. The institutions are injured, maybe even damaged to the point of being unrecognizable. Let me be very clear. The way of the cross is the way of powerlessness. Jesus' answer to the question of who is the greatest is straightforward. The greatest is the one who takes the position of the least among you. The one who serves everyone is the greatest of all. What does being this kind of servant look like? It looks like giving up your life prematurely and hanging on a cross and dying for the whole race. That's the way the greatest among us steps into the position of the least of us. So when we start to talk about what it means to be training for service in the kingdom of God, I mean, that's where we've been journeying, right? We've talked about the fact that the kingdom is here now, that our first expression of life in the kingdom is the worship that we do on Sunday mornings and that we do on Mondays all day long and Tuesdays all day long and on through the week, and that after worship, our responsibility is to demonstrate our citizenship in the kingdom by the way we live our lives throughout the week and that 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 demonstration of the kingdom may require some training on our part and that this now is week two of the training talks for those of you who were like napping a moment ago that's where we are in this continuum when we talk about what it means to be in training for service in the kingdom the first thing we have to acknowledge is that this training is not about bringing us power or prestige or position. In fact, it's likely that the training we actually need is to help us lay down power, prestige, and position. 
Step one in the training process of citizens of the kingdom is learning to sacrifice what we have made of ourselves in order to become what he desires us to be. I've told you the story of my life many times, how at age 24 I was a school principal working 70 hours a week and finally arriving at the understanding that working as hard as I could in the kingdom to serve God was not the same thing as obeying him. It's a different thing altogether. My decision to serve him how I chose isn't the same thing as obeying his leading and doing what he instructs me to do, whatever that might be. God doesn't need me to work for him in ways that I think are helpful. Because that leaves me in the driver's seat all the time. He needs me to obey him in ways that please him. And he works out the details from there. Becoming least of all requires me to give up my control of my future to affirm that I live as a citizen of the kingdom of God and to surrender my will to the sovereign, the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no more questions about greatness after that. There are no more questions like, well, what are you comfortable with? As if that could matter. The only question remaining is, what is Jesus leading me to do? How is the community confirming what I'm hearing from God? One of my favorite sayings from Evelyn Hunderhill's book, The Ways of the Spirit, uh, is a saying where she talks about our tendency to be self-absorbed. And she says, there is plenty of room in the kingdom for a whole paint box of theological colors, but no room for one self-absorbed priest. I think that's exactly it, isn't it? No room for one self-absorbed citizen. Lots of diversity, lots of beauty in our diversity, but no room to acknowledge any sovereign other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Self-absorbed Christians are comfortable walking past the needs of others. Self-absorbed Christians keep the little ones from coming to Jesus. Self-absorbed Christians walk past the neighbor who has been beaten by robbers. Self-absorbed Christians are always protecting their power, their prestige, their position. Perhaps, Self-absorbed Christians need to seriously think about cutting off hands or feet or gouging out an eyeball here or there. Or better yet, allowing the Holy Spirit to crucify the self-absorbed part of them and fill them with his love for others. This passage ends with some cryptic words. We are going to be salted with fire. I think this means purified by trials and difficult situations. True Christians will be able to embrace these trials and grow through them, increasing their trust in God and confirming their identity as citizens of God. I'm not saying that happens easily, but it happens. And then Jesus says, have salt 
in yourself? Unusual words. In other places, we are told to be salt, the spice that brings life and flavor to that which is insipid or dull. Salt and light are held up as descriptors of the richness that the gospel brings to the world. But I suspect that Jesus isn't using that metaphor right here. I think, I think he's saying make sure that salt is present in your life. I mean, according to Leviticus 2, uh, when you brought your sacrifice to the temple, you had to bring salt with it so that salt could be offered with the sacrifice. And it just may be that, that what's being said here is having salt in yourself may mean identifying yourself as a sacrifice. Bringing the salt with the sacrifice, you being the sacrifice and living at peace with one another. So when I talk about training to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, I think we might have to talk about how we lower ourselves to the tasks we're being given. This is hard, I mean, who do you know that signs up for humility training? I mean, who do you know that signs up for lessons about thinking about others before yourself? Who do you know that wants to train to be less powerful or less prestigious? Not too many. I mean, how do we humble ourselves to pay attention to the kids and the least of these among us? I knew a guy named Frank once who heard a message like this and decided that even though his practice was to come Sunday mornings dressed to the nines, that his dress could conceivably be a barrier to some. And so he changed his wardrobe to blue jeans and flannel shirts because his deep heart desire was to be available to anyone who might need to talk to someone, who might need a comforting presence. I mean, who signs up for training to be less self-absorbed? Citizens of the kingdom of God do. People who genuinely care about the least of these, they do. Self-absorbed priests have all the answers for the church today. Self-absorbed Christians know exactly what the church ought to be doing regardless of the needs of people standing all around them. How do you know who the self-absorbed folks are? Usually they're the ones shouting the loudest, telling us what to do. How do you know how self-absorbed you are? Take a deep breath and ask your closest friend. Ask for real, giving them permission to tell the truth. If your conversation lately has been filled with it just isn't fair. It may be you who's self-absorbed. If you've been assigning fault to others a great deal recently, it may be that you are somewhat self-absorbed. The bottom line is this. You can't be trained for humility until you confess that you lack humility. You can't be trained to be sensitive to the needs of others until you understand that you are clueless to the needs of others. I had an excellent conversation this weekend with one of my colleagues. 
we discuss the level of fear that many women live with on a daily basis that most men know nothing about. We talked about the different levels and activities of life in areas where fear affects many women. We talked about issues of personal safety, gender discrimination, and insecurities which seem to range on. The truth of the matter is this. If you never talk about that issue with people who understand, and in this case, by definition, that means women, you will be and remain clueless, always. You owe it to the women in your life to understand the vulnerabilities that women inevitably face and then do what you can do to support them and protect them from the vulnerabilities they articulate in ways that are meaningful to them. This was brought home to me when my wife began to talk to me about the insecurity she feels when she takes her walk in this neighborhood and her fear that someone might have been following her or why she can't walk where she really wants to walk because she feels it's wisest to walk up past the police station and back because at least that way she's walking to or close to a place of safety. And I confess my thoughts at first were, you're overthinking that. And this is a safe neighborhood and I never have any fear when I walk. And as soon as I said to myself, I never have any fear to walk. I recognized that I was attempting to project my experience onto her, which was clueless. How do we pay attention to the needs that are around us? How do we humble ourselves and listen to the voice of the Spirit? It, it's gonna take some training We've got to find ways to listen and understand. I mean, we live in a culture in which self-absorbed, self-exalting, self-centered living is epidemic. It is the norm. Cluelessness is in epidemic proportion right now. Humility is seen as a weakness. The excellent news this morning is that Jesus Christ is Lord for the self-absorbed as well as everyone else. He invites us to humble ourselves before him and pledge to serve him at his direction rather than at our own. If you will take the radical step of presenting your life as a sacrifice before him, if you will have salt in yourself, he will renew you, cleanse you, fill you and make you useful in the kingdom of God. Sing with me. This is my desire to honor you. Lord, with all my heart, I worship you. All I have within me 
I give you praise. All that I adore is in you. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, Lord, have your way in me. I'm going to pray and give you an opportunity to respond to what you might hear the Holy Spirit saying. You may want to kneel at this altar and confirm a decision that you've made with the Father. You may want to remain seated and commune with the Father where you are. Uh, feel free to transact any spiritual business you need to. But I'd invite you to stand for prayer and then remain standing to sing a song together. Lord Jesus, we are yours. Save us from being clueless. By your Spirit's presence in us, make us sensitive to those who are around us. Give us eyes to see children and the least of these. Help us understand the way of the cross, the way that submits to you in everything so that we can be your sons and daughters with integrity knowing the joy of life in the kingdom of heaven now. We ask this in your name, Lord Christ. Amen. May the presence of the Holy Spirit be evident in your lives as you demonstrate and announce the kingdom of God in your actions. To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.